by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Knives Out, starring Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Ana de Armas, and Jamie Lee Curtis, directed by Ryan Johnson. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's closing cask day. Um, Man, I can't even tell you which cat. This is probably like cast 10, 11, or 12. Yeah. But uh, this has been a fun one looking at whodunits and us talking about them in a variety of ways, covering a shot in the dark, uh, blowout, uh, prisoners, and now Knives Out, which is the new release, um, came out on Wednesday. It's a film has a, a really interesting Thanksgiving-y feel, which is odd to say. I don't know how a things can feel thanksgiving just because it's such a it's such a weird way to describe something but yeah. it just has that feeling and, and a very more classic whodunit it more along the lines of like a clue like mm-hmm. type of atmosphere so yeah let's let's kind of get started we're gonna polish off the rest of the 1792 i don't know how much is left with this cast maybe hit this one just for the flight i know and then... yeah and then we got another one here that maybe we'll we'll just introduce in the middle of the episode so goodbye to the 1792 we've been thankful for you um i saw the post on instagram hashtag thankful for 1792 yeah it's two bottles of that they've both been really good to us yeah i, I think maybe we did the original the regular one first and then this is the single barrel casing which and they're both both very tasty cheers matt cheers mm-hmm Excellent. Well, let's kind of get right into it. You know, Knives Out features a pretty diverse and actors from all different areas, different genres even. So it's a pretty decent ensemble feature. And this is something that doesn't happen a lot on film. So, Matt, my question to you is what do you think is the greatest and or your favorite uh, ensemble feature? So a lot to choose from here. I'm purposely going to omit Boogie Nights because we've talked about that a lot. And at some point we're going to do that film. Mm-hmm. So I don't want people to say, how could he miss Boogie Nights? Yes. Yeah. Right. Could be your honorable mention for today. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, I think you could include latter iterations of The Hangover to a certain extent as well. But I'm going to go with Ocean's Eleven and frankly, the whole entire Ocean series. As it moves into Andy Garcia and Al Pacino a little bit later, I think the ensemble collection gets even more fantastic so you're referring to the read not the frank sinatra one, but the the steven soderbergh version well the frank sinatra ones you know those were kind of disregarded in certain way as not terrific film great cast but yeah. not terrific film mm-hmm. i think the first oceans 11 you can say is an amazing cast and it's also a great film sure yeah um i'm a huge clooney fan mm-hmm. uh you know and to put him in that role you know, short of James Bond, I don't know what else we're missing from George Clooney's yeah. repertoire of films. Yeah. He's sort of the modern day Cary Grant, and mm-hmm. you know how I feel about that too. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with the Ocean series Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, George Clooney. Um, you know who's my favorite in there, actually, is Elliot Gould. Oh, Elliot Gould mm-hmm. in there. Like it just, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't end. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go with. Ocean's Eleven, but I guess sort of encompassing the entire Ocean's the entire series. series. Yeah. You know which one of those is my favorite is actually thir- 12. thirteen. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Is that the casino? That's the Pacino one. Al Pacino one. Casino. Mm-hmm. Al Pacino to, Casino. Al Pacino Casino. Say that five times quick. Yeah. But yeah, I really like that one. I, I, that one really cracks me up. But uh, they all play well together, and they, I think they all have varying strengths. Sure. Which is you know master in disguise, and then the, they have that Asian acrobatic guy, mm-hmm. and he's like good for like the physical. And then it just Don Cheadle kind of being a wild card sometime. Show me my money. <laughs> like, Casey Affleck. And Scott Kahn. Scott Kahn. Mm-hmm. You I know, don't... you mentioned um, ensemble pieces. I think we'd be remiss not to mention any of the first two Godfathers as well. Right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty. Uh, but that, that's also I think, a lot of animal mention. Sure. I think you could make an argument that the first Godfather maybe features the best cast of all time. Like, of all time. Of those guys. Yeah, just... A lot of unknowns at the time too. Now they're legends, but then they know who John Cazale well, was. Say to John Cazale. or or Al Pacino, or maybe even James Caan for that matter. But no, yeah, that's that's a great one. I I thought about that one, but I think I have that one beat. And there, it's an ensemble cast. They're featured in in three films, and I want to say that you know you get to see an ensemble feature in you know Harry Potter, Star Wars, what Marvel's doing currently, yeah. and they have. Many, many films, seven, eight films to really kind of stretch out their characters and build and kind of add add touches and nuances to them. But I'm picking a series that they filmed all of them all at one time, and it's the Lord of the Rings uh, ensemble. Between Ian McKellen, Elijah Wood, v- uh, Viggo Mortensen, uh, Christopher Lee, I almost forgot, Kate Blanchett, Nev Campbell. Not Nev Campbell, but um, Liv Tyler. <laughs> Liv Tyler. Same difference. That's so interchangeable. No, yeah, I think just a great cast and what, what they did, you know, first taking a gamble on filming all three at the same time. But I think all three of those films are really great in their own right. But as a whole piece, as an ensemble, that's my favorite cast. I, they, they, I don't think you could have done it better, um, you know, with, with a lot of those actors. So... One of the rumors is, I don't know if there's just a little tidbit anecdote from Jesse, is that Sean Connery, oh, they really wanted him for the role of Gandalf. Hmm. So they sent him the thing, and Sean Connery very honestly just said, I don't understand this material. Like, I'm, I'm not going to do this film because this just does not make sense to me. How weird. So he passed, but, you know, Ian McKellen's pretty pretty great Gandalf. I have a question for you about sure. this. I think this is going to play in the mm-hmm. review, too. Mm-hmm. Is it... The acting ability of the characters that have been ensembled that you like, or is it the story that they've been ensembled for? I think I'm going to pick one in the middle. Mm-hmm. I think it's the char- the actor's ability to interplay with those characters, but which comes from the story, too. It comes from the screenplay. But I think if there's a lot of good back and forth and obvious chemistry is another part of it, and yeah, the acting ability, but then the story just kind of brings that, that kind of lifts them all up too. So it's kind of a little bit of all of them actually. So yeah, that's the one I'm gonna pick. Find myself in that space a lot right now. Yeah, thinking about exactly with these ensemble pieces, is it the ability of the actors? Because here's one of the downfalls I think of ensemble films. Mm-hmm. Is you can really see in ensemble films who can act and who can't. Sure. Because it's right there in front of you. Mm-hmm. And so is it their ability or is it the characters that they're playing inside the story? Because like, although Vigo and Ian McKellen are terrific actors, yeah. you know, 
Sean Austin, um, sort of starting to yeah. For and I, I love those films. I don't love them as much as you do, but I also love all not the Hobbit yeah. stuff, but the first four I love. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's an it's for me it's a, it's a I'm at a crossroads in some ways. Sure, no, that's, that's interesting to bring up. I kind of try to think, you know, like a Marvel kind of does it too, because there's obviously strengths in a lot of those casts, and then even maybe some weak links too. So. Yeah. yeah, is it the story? Because then the story, arguably, Endgame just like totally just befuddles all of that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I think if they play characters that have an obvious charisma and they interact well with each other, I think you look forward to those interactions. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, to no, you. it does. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's interesting. It's you, you don't get a lot of them unless they are. So th- this film, Knives Out, and we'll kind of get into this presents an interesting idea just because it's we've talked about it is a spec idea it's not based on a book it's not a marvel thing to assemble this kind of kind of cast of characters you know i thought you were going to go with Hmm. until you until i really i thought you were going to go with the hateful eight because i know that that's a really nice film for you and that's certainly an ensemble definitely yeah um but we could kind of really beat this one up for a while couldn't we yeah there's a ton there is just kind of going through a breakfast club i'm not a john like i'm not the biggest john hughes fan but that's another kind of ensemble piece of sorts i would love to do a cask someday we're tangential already this morning so rice smile nation i apologize because i'm the one sitting up on these tangents yeah i'd love to do a cask one time that's the most overrated films of all time yeah that would certainly be an entry for me that'd be in there i hate that film I don't mind it, but I don't love it either. It's so stupid. It's, it's not, just so stupid. It's not my favorite John Hughes film. Let's not sure. make clubs by making a club. Let's <laughs> not join a clique by joining a clique. Yeah. So stupid. Do you have a, Do you like any of John Hughes' stuff? Yeah, a lot of it. You I like, just don't. Do, I hate that one. Do you like planes, trains, and automobiles? Love it. Been thinking about that a lot, being that it's Thanksgiving. Holiday actually. movie, yeah. yeah. Yep. Interesting. Well, excellent. We're off to a great start. Well, let's jump right in. It's going to be a fun one. So let's get to our review breakdown of Knives Out. Knives Out opens up with the house of Harlan Thromby, and we are found by his housekeeper, Fran, just finds him dead in his upstairs, like, secret room, with the knife on the floor, blood splattered everywhere, and, you know, this is just the kind of inciting our mystery of what's going to kind of drive the whole film is who killed Harlan, which is going to be answered fairly quickly, actually. But this is kind of kind of the get-go. You know, Matt, I like I like how the film starts, too, because we kind of get, like, this really stringy, quartetist music. It's it, Brian Johnson's really setting the stage for a whodunit, you know what I mean? I, do. I don't read a lot of Agatha Christie, and I'd never watched a lot of, like, the, that type of, the, those type of, like, sleuthing type of novels or you were or, sitting down watching murder she wrote no, i never watched that. murder she wrote <laughs> uh but th- this has that feel of what i imagine those classic whodunits had from the music to just kind of a gothic mansion of sorts that's not like the like the the creme de la creme of mansions but it has the aesthetic that an author would have in his in his you know with his personal effects like statues and things like that 
I think there's a reason that Clue is such a popular game and mm-hmm. has been mm-hmm. reimagined in so many different genres, whether it's Scooby Doo Clue or whatever. The <laughs> hell. We have like two ver- three versions at my house, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think it's because there's a certain formula that works in a whodunit, and mm-hmm. it's the secret passageways, and we get that. Yeah. And the study filled with ornate or gothic belongings yeah. from books to chandeliers to statues. Uh, to that Game of Thrones chair where everybody's sort of oh, yeah. interviewed in the whole film Ooh, with all good. the knives pointing at their heads, that's which good. is pretty pretty um, on the nose in some ways, but also sort of poses kind of an interesting idea in that film, yeah. which is like where does guilt start and who is really guilty. But yeah, there's a, there's a, a pretty simple formula to this. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think in a mansion, mm-hmm. it works well because it sort of reeks of excess and opulence, oh, yeah. and those play well in whodunits. Mm-hmm. Like a whodunit in the projects could be an interesting movie, yeah. but it takes on a different narrative than would in, you know, um, Chateau de Xanadu or whatever. <laughs> That'd be a good place to do one. Right. It w- this is so off to- uh, topic, but not quite. Uh, you mentioned Clue. Me and my friends used to play this knockoff version called 13 Dead End Drive. It was the same game, but like it was just like different characters, and uh, you had, you set booby traps like on like the board. So yeah. that, that was that was kind of a fun thing, but it's very knivesy and gothic and 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 whatnot. So Matt and I have polished off the 1792, and we are dabbling into the legendary Duke. So this is Duke Bourbon. This is actually made by John Wayne's family from a recipe that you know he that he I guess had for years. This was gifted to me by my friend Nate. So let's pause it for a minute and uh, bottoms up, Pilgrim. Here we go. It has an interesting taste to it. That's really smooth Mm -hmm. in the front, and that's got a little bit of a kick in the back. And I can almost, gosh, I can almost taste like, uh, I don't want to say cinnamon, but that almost feels like cinnamon on Mm. the back end there. A little bit. Interesting. As John Wayne would say, that'll be the day. (laughs) Can I tell you something last night? Yeah. I was talking to my wife. Yeah. And I said, we got home from the movie, and I said I was going to have a couple pieces of pie, which make about 9 and 10 over the last three days. (laughs) But I said, did you hear Jesse say that he's kind of come to the church of pecan pie lately? And she's like, no. And I said, he may not have said that at Thanksgiving, but he said that when we were together. And I said, I don't know a single person that doesn't like bourbon, that doesn't like pecan pie. Mm. And she couldn't quite understand that, but... Do you like they? They I are think they, perfect for each other. Yeah, are they not. And I've actually now that you mentioned it, I've never had a piece of pecan pie with the chaser of bourbon, so that might be fun. Actually, is it the hints of caramel? It could be. I yeah. Think so they just feel the, like they go, and the, they in fact do go. The caramel with the with the, with the drizzle because the pecans are just so caramelized. Oh, I'm getting hungry just talking about it. <laughs> Let's get some pecan pie out for this podcast. Excellent, man. Rice smiles, venturing a new territory. Two bottles in one. <laughs> Episode. So there, there we have it. Yeah. So Harlan Thromby is dead. We need to know who's done it. And now we're introduced to our wide assortment of of characters here that are going to be in, uh, interrogated by by the police here. So to kind of just you know start us off, you know he has uh, two, three children. One's deceased. One of the children. This is Linda Drysdale. This is Jamie Lee Curtis. And Walt uh, Thromby, uh, Michael Shannon. Do you like Michael Shannon? Love him. Yeah, I think he's such a talented. I, I wish I wish he was in like a lot more things. Like, 
and I wish Man of Steel wasn't so shitty that because like I think as General Zod he could have been like you know truly really good at that. It's the the material's garbage. The Gen X William Macy millennial version of the same character. Ooh, they're they're good. very similar, I think, in the roles they take. Mm, that's and good. Wildly talented. Very, yeah, that's that's very fair. And then uh, married to the deceased Thromby sibling is Joni Thromby, Tony Collette. It's the first time we've gotten to talk about her, but we've talked about her in the Sixth Sense and Hereditary. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad she's part of this cast as well. And then um, married to Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Linda, is Richard Drysdale, played by Don Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen Don Johnson in, in too many things. I always you know, always think of Miami Vice first, but I think he definitely holds his own here with amongst these casts of characters. I think you brought up an interesting point, and since you brought it up, I'm going to piggyback on you here. Mm-hmm. There are three very actually four very distinct characters in this movie that we recognize from other walks and other series yeah that i think presents a challenge in the film that we'll get into as we proceed here Mm -hmm. don johnson is crockett yeah uh obviously jamie lee curtis is only and always going to be laurie strode Mm -hmm. like she can be other things yeah and i love her in true lies and she's got that great dance sequence and she's hot and all right all that Mm -hmm. um Daniel Craig, to me, will always be a mm. James Bond. Yeah. And Chris Evans is always going to be Cap. Mm-hmm. So I think you have a challenge now, and that's how can you take these typecast characters yeah. and play them out in a role that is unfamiliar in the typecast? Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways this works for me in the film, and in some ways it totally doesn't work for yeah. me in the film. Okay. Um, but we'll get into that. Yeah. So these are the initial ones that are that are kind of interviewed here first, and we kind of get the the the, the play out of Harlan Harlan's last night. Harlan Thromby is played by Christopher Plummer, which I wish he was in more things too. Super I've, talented. I've, I've always loved him in all of his films. Speaking of whodunits, he played the Pink Panther mm-hmm. bandit in Return of the Pink Panther, the the Clouseau sequel there after Shot in the Dark. So. Yeah, I think we got a you know really talented cast that are being interviewed here um, by uh, like Keith uh, Stanfield. Um, you'll remember him from um, Get Out, but they're just kind of going by the books, ask, asking traditional questions. And whenever they come to like a crux in the road or a crossroads, we get Daniel Craig's character just kind of throws a little note on the piano, like almost like I feel like he's bookmarking like things to come back to or little passages to kind of to kind of reference. When, when when he's finally just straight up called out on it, like, hey, who who the hell are you? Like, who are you? What are you doing here? So Daniel Craig is playing uh, Benoit Blanc, this kind of renowned uh, New Orleans-ish uh, private investigator. And he's had some acclaim. New Yorker wrote an interesting article about him um, that's provided him a little bit of fame. But the people know a little bit about him. But he's 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 a bit of an odd odd duck here. The way he just kind of goes about his his way of thinking. Uh, no disagreement there. He's I guess kind of the off-putting southern gentleman. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that you brought up the keystrokes on the piano, which maybe bookmark things in the testimonials <clears throat> that the possible suspects might giving mm-hmm. might be giving to the cops. Uh, I think we're already, for me at this point, starting to suffer from one of the things that I, I struggled with in the film, and that's the over-excess and the under-significance. 
he's not a piano player that's never revisited. And although I think he's terrific mm-hmm. as this southern guy, mm-hmm. and he's got some great sayings and really yeah. kind of off-putting in the way that he does it, I'm not entirely certain for me mm-hmm. that him being southern in that is anything other than a showcase for him to play kind of a stage character Johnny Depp-esque in a Tim Burton role sort of movie mm-hmm. that doesn't do anything to perpetuate the story forward or give him a significant insight into the sleuthing that he's going to need to do. Like, it's good. He's he's, he's good at it. Yeah. And he's British, so to, to hide the British accent and then bring in this very Kentucky, Alabama, southerny kind of drawl with all the sayings and armed with kind of the gentlemanly characteristics that go along with it, it's interesting to watch, and he delivers it really, really well. Yeah. But to me, to no significance in the film at all. Like, it has nothing to do with anything that perpetuates the story in the film. Are you talking about just the, the southerness? Or? Why, do, why do we care if he's southern or New Yorker? or like It doesn't have anything to do with the movie, and it is very, very, very distracting in the film for me. Okay. He does it well. Like I'm not saying he doesn't do a good job. I just I don't know why they chose to do that. Yeah, the reason it works for me too is because he plays a character like James Bond, and because that's so recognizable and so prominent in his filmography. This the the this 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 rough tough James Bond. You know, if you cast someone in here of you know Southern ancestry, like a Channing Tatum, to play this, and that seems not as interesting or that seems just by the books to me casting someone like daniel craig is such a left field choice that it almost in my brain that that just that casting decision just really works for me and i like seeing him play we you know we've talked about logan lucky kind of does the same thing in that yeah um what's his his name joe bang and he he doesn't i i could argue too that that doesn't need to be daniel craig in that character but because of i think the gravitas or the persona that craig has in his past, his filmography, I think it's nice to see him step outside of that kind of linear James Bond, suave, sophisticated, to kind of play someone who's a bit uh, aloofish to an extent. I want to say Benoit Blanc is necessarily not a very great detective. Okay, so I okay, I, I have to stop you there because yeah. I told, we were talking about this this morning, I said the question I want to ask Jesse is, yeah. is Benoit Blanc good at his job or bad at his job and you kind of have just answered the question that I was going to ask you which is he's kind of bad at his job Mm -hmm. I I don't disagree with anything you just said I think Daniel Craig um, and what was the the war film that he made Defiance that's a really solid film man Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think he's kind of neglected with the range that he has because he's been so typecast that's why I brought up that up in the flight yeah yeah, that's good is he sort of like Oh, that's James Bond. Okay, and he's a good Bond. Mm-hmm. Do you like him as Bond? Oh, yeah. I know you do, mm-hmm. right? So do I. Mm-hmm. So he's good at that, and he's showing his range. And I'm I'm not begrudging him at all on that. Yeah. You're I just don't know, like, the vehicle of that to me goes back to also the question that I asked you earlier, mm-hmm. which was, it is it the actor's ability to act, or is it a story that they are kind of existing in in these ensemble pieces? Because what I think he's... Agreed. He's really good at Benoit Blanc. Yeah. I think he makes Chris Evans in this film look like Chris Evans is doing Chris Evans yeah. on screen. I, I think Chris Evans is atrocious in this film. Mm-hmm. Chris, Imagine this. Who can we cast as the millionaire black sheep playboy? Yeah. Chris Evans. Yes. Because that's what Chris Evans is. Mm-hmm. 
like and so you get i think in this movie a distraction for me which is how talented like four of them are Mm -hmm. and how non-talented everybody else is Mm -hmm. daniel craig's really good at benoit blanc in this film yeah i just think it's an interesting choice to make him southern where none of the southern charm that comes along plays into his ability to sleuth out this crime well, I don't know what that would look like, though. Well, I mean, I think you could disarm the people that you were investigating by being, I wouldn't say charismatic, but Southern hospitality and ultra polite in such a way. Like, think about Clouseau. Yeah. Clouseau's superpower, that's a terrible way to say it, but his mm-hmm. protagonist ability is he's so frustrating yeah. that the criminals end up getting so frustrated that they kind of spill the beans on themselves. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. a terrible summation of Clouseau, but that's kind of the way he works. Sure, sure. If you're going to have the super sleuth in a movie mm-hmm. and you choose to, because I agree with you, not make him very good at his job because yeah. we'll get to like kind of what the crowning moment in the movie is when this sort of is all revealed and we'll, I'd love to get into that. Mm-hmm. And then the the characteristics that are portrayed really well in an actor's point of view don't do anything to help you solve the crime. I just find myself kind of shrugging my shoulders saying, get on with it. Mm-hmm. And if he's Southern and is ultra polite and goes with Southern charm and Southern hospitality and manners, 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 then we've given him an ability to disarm the web of intrigue of suspects and in this movie, that doesn't happen for me. But I think he's also good, too. And we're getting really hung up on his character. No, but that, that's yeah. a huge point of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he's really good at catching people, like, when they flub up, too. Like, whenever they kind of, like, are misleading them or taking the, you know, their stories in a path that is obviously not not, not true. I think he's he's really good at picking up on those things. I think maybe we're saying maybe how he reacts to them or, like, his actions to, to do that, which I might not argue with you on that. Yeah. Okay, I think you're... Um, so that's, I think, a good start with him. Yeah. Um, what else? So let's just kind of propel this a little forward. One of the things I do like about this kind of opening interrogational bit is kind of how we see it from the different perspectives of the families. And, you you know, whether it's the, the Drysdales kind of being like, you know, them, you know, with the, with, with the, with Christopher Plummer as he blows out his cake. And then, you know, everyone kind of sees it their own way. You know what I mean? Especially Tony Collette's character. She's like, oh yeah, they love me. And then she's like dancing aloof to Roxy music. I love that song too, by the way. Mm-hmm. But, um, and they're just like, get, 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 at, this get her. And why she's still hanging out with our family type <laughs> cool. of thing. Yeah. So I think they do a good job of kind of juxtaposing their reactions to how the events went to, because then when that happens in films like this you're trying you're as a viewer trying to dig through well where's the truth in any of that you know what i mean so it's it's pretty good so walt thromby this is michael shannon's character he runs the publishing firm of the harlan thromby's estate now harlan thromby is this agatha christie type writing these mystery novels to a year he 80 million copies sold worldwide pretty successful and his family is just kind of living in the benefits you know it's so so to speak yeah. so he's running the thing he wants to expand it into films and tv which that's where the money's at which he's not wrong in that but yeah. he just doesn't want 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 that want to go in that direction because what he really wants more for his son and for most of his children is to just you need to find your own kind of path in life type of thing i think thromby's goals to have his children get on their own two feet and they make kind of a running joke of i built this company from the ground up with the million dollars that my dad gave me Mm -hmm. which 
you know, is obviously um, there's some satire involved in that in the landscape of today's political climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and justly so. Mm-hmm. Like, they, yeah, it's pretty easy to all the way from the ground up with the million dollars. Boy, all right. How's that? Right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. boy, could you could you find a shovel? You know, I mean, like yeah, it's, that, it's, well, that, hey, Chris Evans had that line, too. He's like, he's like, yeah, my mom built her business from the one million dollar loan my father gave her. Which is kind of. <laughs> yeah. So I guess. As Thromby's celebrating his 85th birthday, mm-hmm. he's come to this place where he recognizes his family needs to sort of do this on their own. Mm-hmm. Again, so I'm going to keep going back to this. Mm-hmm. An overexpression and under-significance. Like why at 85, mm-hmm. we don't have a whole lot of story on him. He doesn't seem to be at odds with any of his children or widowed daughter-in-law prior to that and then it's just 85 he kind of wakes up and sort of decides it's time for you all 45 to 60 plus year olds to go figure this out oh okay i guess except why like i okay so yes because there's needs to be a movie and yeah. a story yeah yeah come on Right? Why? But he finds he finds with some of them he finds. Well, you've been cheating me out of. I've been paying okay, your daughter. Tony Collette's one. Yes, your sorry. daughter's tuition, and then with Don Johnson, you've been cheating on my daughter, and this and that. So it's it's a little more fleshed out with those ones. But I, I kind of see where you're coming out with 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 this one. But yeah, it does come to because I think all these characters present an interesting idea that they aren't likable people. Yeah. To an extent, the entire Thromby clan, so to speak, yeah, and, it's, and, and it's, even kind of him, huh? Yeah, to, even to him, yeah. And it's and it's really obvious to me once once Marta gets involved and in that they kept saying, "I wanted you at the funeral, but I got outvoted." And we hear that from like two others that so so we don't even know where the truth in that lies because it's just bullshit. And especially when they kept when they keep like bringing up like oh Marta, she's from she's from Uruguay, she's from Paraguay, she's from Brazil, she's from Ecuador, so. They don't even have the lack of respect for this person that's helping their father. But to me, the the kind of general consensus I get of this Thromby clan, which is, you know, Jacob and Meg and um, Walt's wife, they're just not likable people. They're just they're just serious, like especially from what's presented to us. They're just living this nice life by way of dad's money, like the way of the way of his his book, his book writing. Yeah. So that they're not likable, you want to now create a web of intrigue mm-hmm. for reasons why any number of these people might be the possible mm-hmm. person behind yeah. Harlan Thromby's suicide slash murder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I think that kind of falls into a general pattern that these movies sort of have to take. And everybody has a couple, a sin or two that they're trying to hide. And everybody might have the potential mm-hmm. to do dad in. Because they're trying to hide an affair or embezzlement or you just got fired from the publishing company that is this ma- this uh, author magnate's estate or, um, you know, whatever. You might get cut off from your, your private school and we have all of that going on. And again, it reeks of privilege and excess. And there is a satirical element into the hateable 1% that this movie is kind of banging on here. Mm -hmm. And then you get the nurse who's taken care of father, who's the most likable by miles Mm -hmm. of just, well, kind of of everybody in this movie and make her like the prime suspect in some ways. 
okay, we're we're off to like a reasonable start, mm-hmm. and it's obviously banging on a pretty contemporary message that I would argue seems like a little bit picking low hanging fruit. But okay, let's go with it. I'm fine with that, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of at about I wish I'd looked at my watch. Maybe the 45 minute mark. We do, I think, what's kind of a huge moment in this movie that's a mistake, and that's destroy the web of intrigue that's barely been constructed before we can get it fully, fully. I don't even think it's forty-five minutes. I think it's it's probably thirty minutes. Okay, so into then the film, yeah. we get to what's really happened to Harlan, mm-hmm. and that's in the nightly game of Go. Game I'm not. I've, I've never played that. Yeah, a game that. Uh, Marta and Thromby play every night and then she goes about medicating him. Mm -hmm. And in a mix-up or a mistake, she doses him what she thinks is with 100 milligrams of morphine. Mm -hmm. And so essentially there's 10 minutes until all brain function ceases and she goes on a rather frenetic quest Mm -hmm. to find the naloxaprine. Mm -hmm. So instead of injecting him with with Toradol, and God bless Toradol, because I've been down that road and I've needed it a few times in my life. Yeah. Um, she hits him up with 100 milligrams of, of this morphine, and it's just a matter of time. Yeah. And then she can't find the antidote. Mm-hmm. So Harlan realizes that this is curtains, mm-hmm. and he's going to die. And they devise this plan in the last second mm-hmm. to protect her, because he's appreciative of her efforts and her caretaking. Yeah, her and her help. That will basically hide what has happened and... The mistake that she's made and in so doing protect her family from deportation yeah it's such a strange twist for me and again it may work for some i just was thinking like wait that's wait what so he devises a plan with her Mm -hmm. to like protect her from this mistake that she thinks she's made Mm -hmm. i'll let you go because i think you wanted to say something no go ahead keep going um so we kind of walk through, and I think this is one of the successful pieces of this movie and this genre, is enough of a flashback and backstory to sort of bait the trap for the audience into why someone might have done X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And that also creates the web of intrigue. Now, we got it earlier when, um, uh, what the hell's his name? Um, Benoit. Benoit Blanc. Yeah, Benoit Blanc is talking to all the family members and we're getting segments of what happened the night of the party and you're like oh well they had a fight and this and this and you kind of start to build this web of intrigue Mm -hmm. on who might have done that and about the time that starts to just get out of the bay Mm -hmm. like the boat leaves the harbor yeah we find out oh well shit none of them killed him yeah and for now Mm -hmm. we'll find out later it may change yeah she did yeah i don't know i mean you just okay so this is a two hour and ten minute movie yeah and you've just undone the first 30, at least 30, whatever yeah, it is. 30 minutes just of un, the movie. Just undone it. Yeah. I like it. Okay. Just because, like, I've seen a lot of these whodunit things. And they, again, they all follow the same kind of path. It's yeah. shot in the dark. Going to be real in the final bits. Same thing with, like, Clue. And the one we like to talk about, Death Trap. Death, the Death Trap. Yeah. Everyone should see Death Trap. It's The yeah. house looked like Death Trap. Literally. Um, it's this other whodunit with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. And they kind of get into like a bit of a plot of sorts. Kind of similar. And kind of a lover's quarrel. And a, a lover's, yeah, quarrel. But it's it's amazing. It's, it's really good. It really is. But I kind of thought about that movie too. Because that movie kind of, you know, does its thing um 30ish 40 minutes into the movie too so then we turn it into a who done it into of like will they get caught or not it 
Yeah, <laughs> it's something like something like that. But then yeah. we st- we still get the twists along the way. I just like I like how Marta's. I, you see her compassion in her, fr- her frantic like Harlan. You're gonna die. This and that. And he's just oddly okay with it. He's just like this is the way it needs to to kind of go. Yeah. And all the clues. So the other part I like about these types of films too is like how well are these characters gonna like you know follow through so marta needs to she needs to go out state the time and then she's got to pull out and come back in but she screws that up and ends up on the security footage but you know everything's kind of you know set up you know kind of nicely too as she like kind of comes back through this this dirt path through the back of the house she's greeted by the dogs the dogs know her so they're gonna not greet her with hostility. And it's shockingly, and I would argue, mm-hmm. for the excesses of this movie, in a surprisingly subtle moment in the film that's actually going to play out to an important moment later. Mm-hmm. The fact that they don't bark yeah. and kind of appreciate and run up to her in a nice, like, kind of loving way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Keep going. Yeah. So she, she goes back up to the house, um, almost falls off the trellis, a piece breaks off, but she's able to get in through this kind of very... Again, like secret passagey mystery, like passage from the top uh, window into his study to get his clothing, come back down just to, to kind of create evidence that, oh, someone did see him past midnight after you left. That way you're off the suspect board. So the mystery writer has created a very plausible sequence of events that would shield his caretaker mm-hmm. from being identified as the overdosing mistaken murderer you know which part i really liked is when he's like he's overdosing and he's like he's like oh this is a really effective way to murder somebody he's like he's like and, and he starts writing it down like jotting his notes down as a writer would like oh, yeah. you know when we come up with ideas like i, I got like in my notes in my phone i just have like a, a ongoing thing if i hear something funny i'm putting it down yeah i don't know what it's for but like it's like for something one day well source material and maybe this is important too because this is a spec script yeah source material that's fresh and new is so hard to come by when you get it yeah man it's gold mm-hmm. and can you run with it and make it deliver especially in film mm-hmm. i think is not only what you're talking about and in the story in the movie but this movie mm-hmm. in and of itself um it's a really important point like you get that idea like it's yeah. so high concept here's such a good way mm-hmm. let's go with it and see what we can build it into mm-hmm. and in a in a speckless world that is everything a, a remake or a sequel oh, or really an is. adaptation yeah it's a very noble endeavor by mm-hmm. ryan johnson right? yeah Okay, good. I love it. Where are you going? Keep going. So she she comes back, makes makes evidence that, you know, go back to bed, Dad. <laughs> Him, uh, Walt and his son, who's just on his phone the entire time. With it. <laughs> As Don Johnson's called him, he's the kid's a Nazi. <laughs> kid's like a weirdo. So it's very disconnected again. It's like this like total modern like teenager, right? Yeah. Just in, in front of your phones. And she's able to kind of get out and back home. And watching Murder, She Wrote with her with with her mother. Again, I never watched that show. And just kind of going through all the stuff in her head as she as she gets to see Harlan, you know, take his own life. Um, you know, kind of say, this is for the best. And then we're left with the, like, kind of the one, like, lingering clue, which is this, like, speck of blood on her, on her little white sneaker. Can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah. This is going to play out, I guess, a little bit later. Um, because Benoit Blanc is going to tell her that he identified that speck of blood mm-hmm. a little bit towards the end of the film. Like, I saw it right away, and so I knew you were involved. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be too nitpicky. Yeah. And I don't want to be 
you know, well, this didn't go to this and the car's blue in this scene and it turned right and it's lighter blue and it turned right. Like all that, all that is just so naggy. But in a whodunit, mm-hmm. you have to be very, very careful to cover your bases because the audience is on high alert watching it, looking for any clue that might give them... Part of the whodunit thing is I knew before everybody else, mm-hmm. like trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to ask you a question. Okay. Okay. There's a speck of blood on her shoes yeah. in essentially a sedentary pool of blood in the murder scene, mm-hmm. but yet there's no mud on those same white canvas elevator shoes when she tracks through the mud <clears throat> several times. I think that's a huge mistake. It'd be underneath or movie. underneath, right? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because she does track it in. That comes back later. They're stark white, though. Yeah. So, like, there's no splash from the mud as you're walking, but there is a splash from blood that's, like, 10 feet away that's already, like, 5 to 10 minutes old. I, mm. You're right. You're, you, that is that is a little nitpicky, well, Matt. I, I know. I know. I, I'm, I'm not going to defend that. Yeah. Like, in that movie, for... Benoit Blanc to say I saw the blood, but there's no mud on the shoes. In a who like in a, some other movie, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But if you're gonna find a, a speck of blood that's literally on the eye hole by the lace and is about the, a pinprick in size, like mm-hmm. a ball pin, a ballpoint pinprick in size, mm-hmm. and there's no mud. Yeah. And she's in stark white shoes. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I, I was like, why did I? We shouldn't have even addressed that. That could have been in the movie. Yeah. And then been a false lead that had no. No significance later on the film because wouldn't that is either good or bad at his job and they can't decide. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. I don't even know where we are. No. So we're the, we're the next day now. So now we're kind of reviewing, um, you know, the footage with you know Benoit Blanc, like Stainfield, and there's the, that other guy, and he's like M. Emmett Walsh. Yeah. The yeah. return of M. Emmett Walsh to that. Holy crap. Blood simple. Yeah. How old? He looks like he's eighty. Doesn't he? <laughs> he's looking pretty old. Literally resurrected. <laughs> He looked a little deadish. Yeah, I loved his line too. He's like, he's like, back in the day, we used to have to kind of like monitor security with this. Now we have modern technology. Shit, he was old and blood simple. He's got to be really old now. Yeah, but when he mentions modern technology and then he whips around to this like VHS tape setup. <laughs> pretty funny. Yeah, and, and they're just like going, th- going through the footage and it's like that moment of realization. So th- another great moment too is when she's driving and she says, turn off after the lion. She's like, before the lion? Yes, before the lion. And he's like, or after, after. And then, and then he says, before, after. <laughs> he says before, and she just gets confused in her head and just turns off. So she realizes... Fuck! Like I, I, I messed up. Like I'm gonna show up on this footage, and so, you know, they're fast forwarding through it, and she's like got her finger on that like eject button or something, and then they get distracted by like another thing for enough for them to pop the tape out and like, yeah, we'll turn that into a digital file. Be easier for us to scan through later, and then like let's 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 keep walking the scene here, and so she takes it and kind of erases it because magnetic friction just wrecks havoc on on tape it's magnetic it's the same thing right so she's she trying to so i love marta in this little bit too because she's trying to cover her bases of like as she's walking through she's just like shit i just i messed all this up so they're going through and then there's the then there's the the little mud bit there's footprints and he's like well it's stop everybody like he's like there's try and she's like still walking through it so and then the dogs run over it on then top the of dogs it. run through it so now it's just it's just a mess so again kind of hearkening to like man we're doing a real bang up job of investigating this thing mm-hmm. 
And then how does how does he describe? So the the family's reassembling today. They've had a funeral. They've had the memorial, and now they're having the um, the will reading. Now, mm-hmm. how does he describe it? It's like a, a a stage production of a tax return or something. I thought that was pretty. Thought awesome. that was pretty good. Yeah. So we get that the trellis piece is broken and the dogs keep like bringing it to play fetch. It's just like it's so messed up. And then in the window, <laughs> I would say Jiminy Christmas or he says something, but it's um, it's Harlan's mother thrombie mother somehow. She must be like 110, <laughs> who just it just stands but yet in- somehow looks younger than M. Emmett Walsh. Just <laughs> despite that, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. yeah. She's just standing in this window, and she gre- we forgot to mention she greeted Marta like. Uh, when when she came back down and but she just so good ransom is that you again yeah yeah, yeah. so so that that'll come back later but she just here this observer this nonverbal observer of sorts and no I'm kind of liking this it's the retracing of the steps but realizing the steps that you were supposed to do well you've totally like messed them up so again this is where you know it's not a traditional whodunit of man we got to find out who shot the person in the dark or we got to find out this and that it's like man like if i get caught like i'm in deep shit and even more deep shit coming up but i need to make sure i covered my bases and i didn't i i'm failing at that miserably so at this point Benoit Blanc has adopted Marta as his sort of sidekick, and he's, I think, even gone about calling her Watson at this point. Yeah. And the reason that he has adopted her as his sidekick and running mate in the uncovering of clues regarding this murder is she's very kind. Mm-hmm. Now, we can get in... I, well, I want to get into that later, but okay. Regardless, he seems to find a trait in her that he deems useful, and her kindness is that trait. So it's kind of cool watching her go about the traversing the landscape of this manor and everything that she keeps running into is the trellis that she broke the footprints in the mud and the tape that doesn't like so she's got to cover this stuff mm-hmm. with him right next to her and i think it does create an anxi- an anxiousness or an anxiety in the audience or the the movie participant is trying to figure this out and i think comedy too certainly yeah um, and I think that works really, really well. I found myself like, oh, my God, how is she going to... like? And we see that she has a magnet in her pocket to mm-hmm. delete the tape. And then I love the bit when the dogs, who they always want to play fetch with, she throws the broken trellis, yeah. only to have the dog return with it a little bit later and give it to Benoit Blanc. Oh, there's a broken piece here. The one thing I wish they'd done, can I... Yeah, go ahead. Again, not to be petty, and I'm not I'm not doing that. Go ahead. I just Go ahead. There's a, a little bit with a baseball in that movie. Oh, yeah. That gets Don Johnson, I think, throws the baseball, one of Harlan's baseballs. Out the window. And, and I wish then it was autographed by Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig or had some. It's just a, like an, just a baseball. Yeah. Um, a guy like that would have an autographed baseball of Jimmy yeah. Fox or yeah. they're in Massachusetts. So some your player. favorite Red Sox of all time, whoever yeah. that might be, mm-hmm. right? Pee Wee Reese. I don't know what that Pee Wee Reese. That's a Dodger. <laughs> whoever the hell, whatever Red Sox you want. Yeah. Okay. I wish Marta had found that ball outside. And when she's seeing the muddy path, that is her footprints in the mud that Benoit Blanc is obviously going to put two to together and determine. I wish she had the ball and would have thrown it through the mud and had the dogs run through the mud instead of her just traipsing over her. I mean, it's 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 just small, yeah. bitchy, sour mash, Matt Dixon nonsense here. Um, <laughs> because I think then what it would happen is it creates a bit more resourcefulness for her. Yeah. Um, 
And it gives that baseball, which doesn't have any significance in the film, other than they just kind of throw it around a little bit here yeah, and there. They keep fiddling around with it. Yeah, yeah. you're right. So then we get to the will reading, right? Yeah. And we come to find out that this terrible family of these really hateable people are going to get nothing. Well, real quick first, before that ransom comes back, and he's been oh. kind of like AWOL this entire time. He wasn't there for the funeral, but he's early for the will reading. And they're just having it. Like, like I don't think anyone other than his parents, maybe, like don't really care much for him. I mean, they call him the black sheep of the family and just kind of wants his inheritance and to kind of be done with the, be done with them. And until we kind of get little pepperings of clues that he had this big blowout with Harlan on the night of his death saying, you'll be sorry, or, or they heard words coming from in there, uh, from in his, uh, inside his study. So they're trying the to... Nazi the Nazi boy. teenage boy <laughs> hears some conversations and he's, I think, yeah. Ransom says, you'll regret this. Yeah. So the day of Ransom's death, his birthday, mm-hmm. we have the conversation with Don Johnson's character about having an affair yeah. on Don Johnson's character is, is named uh, Morris. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with Morris, we have the firing of Walt. Mm-hmm. We have the removal of uh, the financial means to send Meg. Meg's daughter to school or what's uh, to send Meg to school, Tony Collette's daughter. Yeah. And then we have, who am I missing? Um, Ransom. Ransom. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Again, back to what I said earlier, we have this nice web of possibility of who's done it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter now no. because we already know who actually did do it. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So then to the will reading, right? Yeah. Harlan is almost like, on his birthday, he is almost like Don Corleone. Instead of granting favors, he's just like fucking everyone over. He's just like, you're fired. You're out. You're not getting another red cent is I think what he calls it. I love the idea. Mm-hmm. And this is not this movie, mm-hmm. which does not say this movie is a failure. I'm not saying that. But I love the idea of on my deathbed, and I know one of my sons or offspring, siblings, family members is going to do me in on my birthday. Mm-hmm. And on the af- post-mortem, from the death, from the grave, not only am I going to espouse all of the sins of everybody that was doing wrong, but I'm also going to come to the killer was X, and whoever figures it out gets the estate. That's just, that's Knives Out 2. We need to write that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's not this film. No, yeah. It kind of is a little bit this film, yeah. but it's also not. So Marta gets everything, right? Yeah. The house, the estate, and it's the a, publishing company, everything. And it's Frank Oz reading, for those that don't know who Frank Oz is. Is that really? Frank Oz comes from the Jim Henson School. I didn't know that. That's Frank Oz. Yeah. The, oh, wow. The School of Puppetry. That. Nice catch. Miss Piggy. Did you know that watching it? I think I did. Yeah, because wow. I, th- I saw him in the cast, and I know what he looks like. So Interesting. Yeah. So, he's, yeah, Miss Piggy, and then we're going to be talking about Frank Oz here coming up in a couple of weeks, I think. Yes, we are. Um, but, yeah, that's him him doing the will reading, and, yeah, everything yeah, is being, being left to her. So from treating her, like, kind of okay and trying to include her in part of the family, she's, like, public enemy number one now. And they're just trying to find any way to, like, get the money back, get the inheritance back, the publishing rights and everything. So it's... Marta's in a really bad position now because now she has this thing that she didn't know she was going to get. She inadvertently, inadvertent manslaughter killed Harlan Thromby. She just she's a mess right now. As the family tries to like, how can we figure this out? <laughs> What's strange to me in this point is the screenwriting point of view. This is the midpoint of the story. Yeah. Uh, one of my my problems with this film is it's two hours and ten minutes. Is it, did, this did, is an hour and forty five minute film. Did it feel a little long to you? It didn't feel a little long. It felt a lot long. Okay. And so 
not time-wise because we're probably two-thirds of the way through, but beat-wise, this is the midpoint of the story. Mm -hmm. And so now Marta has everything and the family hates her. And we start to see them now a changing in the story, which is them angling to see how they can work their way back into the money and the estate that she's been given. And we get the saving of Marta amidst the vultures of the Thromby clan by ransom. Mm -hmm. And he picks her up. Yeah. And I'm telling you, Jesse, this is the Kaiser Soze of moment of this movie that they don't take advantage of. Okay. He picks her up and they go to like, I guess, a little diner. Mm -hmm. And we start discussing what's happened. Mm -hmm. Now, we've already set up one important detail with Marta prior to this, and that's anytime she lies, she pukes. Yeah. So she can't not tell the truth. Yeah. So Ransom, who's portrayed as a bastard in the movie Mm -hmm. and a jerk and all those things, is exactly that. And I'm going to tell you he's going to be that exactly the entire film. Yeah. There is no arc to him. Mm -hmm. He's the motherfucker that you see in the beginning. He's the motherfucker at the end of the film. Yeah. He feeds her some sausage and baked beans. Yeah. And basically starts the process of asking her a bunch of questions because she can't lie because she'll puke up what's going to be something nasty. (laughs) Yeah. Sausage and baked beans all over the place. Yeah. And... They devise a plan mm-hmm. to, like, she spills the, literally, haha, spills the beans mm-hmm. to him about what really happened the night of the murder. And he comes up with a plan to help her get away with it. Yeah. As long as, ready? Yeah. She cuts him in. Yeah. He gets his his part. Yeah. So now we're in the second half of the movie? Yeah. Holy smokes. Uh-oh. Where are we going now? <laughs> You're thinking, like, is this movie three hours That's long? That's kind of what I did think at this point. <laughs> I was, like, looked at my watch, like, oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you that on the on the whole ransom thing. Like it's at this point where I'm just like like I kind of think he did it just and like so if it, the the film has a fault for me by the end and I want to get too much talk about the end before we get into all the other bits before that is I could kind of tell it was ransom you know fairly early on Jesse it's so the, yes so it wasn't like a shock who done it when it was finally revealed which sometimes it can be sometimes it not. And I don't think that killed the movie for me, oh. but it um, you can you can see it coming. Is is it's telegraphed to you? For everybody that hasn't seen it yet, go watch the trailer, mm-hmm. and you can identify in the trailer who the and they're all they're all not likable. They're, but Chris Evans is the most dislikable, and he's presented that way. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to argue is that's exactly who he is in the movie. Mm-hmm. Everything that you think about him in the film is exactly who he is. And not only is that a problem, it's Chris Evans just doing Chris Evans. Mm-hmm. He's lauded right now for this great performance. And again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier for me, which was the Daniel Craig stepping out of James Bond to do a really interesting Southern gentleman performance, if that's what you'd like to call it. Yeah. And then Chris Evans stepping out of Captain America to just be Chris Evans. Yeah. He's just Chris Evans. Mm -hmm. Like, if you read any of the stuff, he's an asshole in Hollywood. We talked about how nice Steve Carell is. Yeah. You can't find a single story of Chris Evans in the same regard. Yeah. He's an asshole. Yeah. Straight up asshole. It's weird because he's typecast as Captain America into being typecast as who Chris Evans is. As who he really is, yeah. Okay, so I'm with you. It's yeah. like sooner or later we're going to find out that that can't, that can't possibly be what happened. Otherwise, I'm watching um, American Hustle and The Wire's going to show up any minute, right? Yeah. The Wire shows up here pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You do a really good job with this. I'll let you run with this. Okay. So after kind of you know dispelling that, you know she's given this kind of almost like blackmail letter of the toxicology report that's been analyzed that gives the truth of, you know, 
the actual dosage of what was in his bloodstream at the time. So they're they're trying to cover all their loose ends. They're 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 they they got to get the actual copy because it's only half a copy. And then they go, and then it's the the the, the blood toxicology place has been lit lit to flames. It's been burnt burned up. Gee, who could have done that? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's at this point. You know, they 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 go on a chase. They're trying to get to the, this meeting spot that's been left to her on an email for you know to meet me here at this address at ten o'clock. The Benoit Blanc is in tow. And yeah, it just becomes. It, it, I will be honest with you, Matt. At at this point, this what do we call this? The midpoint to like into the third act part, like Act Three, being of Act Three, maybe this part does go on a little too long for me to to kind of find these little loose ends that could have, I think, been done a little quicker. Mm-hmm. But she eventually finds, you know, this like laundromat with uh, the the housekeeper, Fern. Fern, yeah. And she's all got like spiders crawling over, and she has the the same the 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 cut off half. And she's been like just goes into like convulsion mode and says, "You did this kind of kind Who of. Who did this? You did this. Oh, you did this. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and then she kind of just goes into cardiac arrest of sorts. And then Marta calls nine one one to kind of kind of get her help. And it's at this point Marta's like, "I can't have any more." this on my conscience i'm coming clean to the family if they want their money they can have it if i have to go to jail i have to go to jail i just i can't do the this chase is just killing me at this point yeah yeah so we kind of get our final act so go ahead set it up for us so earlier in the film one of the key places in the thromby estate is fern's hidden drawer i think in the bottom of a clock Mm mm-hmm or an, it's like a mantle, or on it's like top a, of, it's like a clock with like a secret compartment There's on top like of the fireplace. fireplace. There's like five or six joints in there. So earlier on, they're trying to smooth out Marta because she's stressed out having watched Thrombley die, and Tony Collette's daughter offers her a joint. She doesn't take it, and we get a reveal of sorts like this is where Fern hides her stuff. So Marta's about to like spill the beans to the entire family on what happened, but prior to that. She has gone to where Fern has hidden the toxicology report, which she has because her cousin worked for the toxicologist's office before it was burned down. So all the evidence has been destroyed, except Fern's cousin managed to save a copy of the toxicology report. And Marta goes and grabs it out of that drawer where the joints were that we'd been exposed to earlier and gives it to Benoit Blanc. And this, to me, is a deal breaker in this part of the film. Benoit Blanc at this point is completely unnecessary in this movie because he didn't solve anything. The blood on her shoe that he's going to talk about later has amounted to a significance of nothing insofar as what he does. And the toxicology report, which is going to reveal all sins, which I'll point back to Chris Evans's character, Ransom, she finds Mm -hmm. and she gives to him. So is Benoit Blanc's super sleuthing power literacy? Because that's all he does is read it. And he come to find out that, wait a minute, he wasn't poisoned. He wasn't, wait, he didn't have a significant amount of morphine in his system mm-hmm. that would have killed him. And then we get to what's the jump the shark moment in this for me. Okay. Which is Marta discovers that she, in fact, didn't dose him with 100 milligrams of morphine. She dosed him with the right amount of Toradol. Mm-hmm. And the reason that she didn't know that she didn't screw it up 
is because of the temperature of the toradol and the viscosity and weight or volume of the toradol in the vial felt different than the morphine did. And because she's kind and an attentive caretaker, she just through habit and rote repetition knew which one was which. Man, I don't know, Jesse. That's a tough, tough sell for me. Yeah. That was a tough sell for me. Yeah. Um, it, that may not make sense, but do you want me to just keep running with this? Oh, no, no. The, the viewers may, or the listeners may be like, so what are they talking about? Yeah, so so what it comes down to is that the... the Chris Evans character. Yeah. yeah. So they bring Ransom into here for the final showdown. We'll call it the showdown. <laughs> and, you know, Benoit Blanc's going, you know, full, you know... New Orleans detective on him and kind of going through all the all the measures of what's kind of been what's happened here and Ransom has you know taken from one vial and he's exchanged liquid into 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 either vial and he's taken the the preemptive measure in event of cardiac arrest with him. So put the toradol in the morphine and the morphine in the toradol vials. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. So what Matt's trying to trying to say is that the what's found out is that Marta gave him the right one. You know, based on the viscosity and the temperature and and how and and how it and how it looks. Which I I don't know. Like, yeah. Okay. Keep going. You, the, the, yeah. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> I, I, I don't want this to be confused in the viewers' minds. Or I keep saying that. Sorry, listeners' minds. Yeah. Every time I say viewer, we should have to drink. So <laughs> Just take, take, take a drink. Mm-hmm. So Chris Evans has had, had this plan. You know, we, He had this moment earlier, this moment of clarity when he left the party and kind of came back, went through the same steps that Marta went through, through the path, through the mud, through the trellis, yeah. upstairs to exchange and do the vials. And kind of to kind of create the create create this scenario of sorts that way that Marta could you know be found guilty that way you know because he knew about the the will at this point that's what we find out about the the Nazi boy masturbating in the bathroom uh, that he he heard and he tells him yeah I found out that he had cut us out of the will he was giving it all to her and I was not gonna let that stand I wasn't gonna let our family just go to her. All that you know, hard-earned work in the house and all this and that. So he's like, I'm gonna make sure she is guilty, and <clears throat> yeah, it is. You know, it, it jumping the shark. Yeah, we've talked about that on the on the podcast before too. Jumping the shark, the term from Happy Days when Fonzie literally jumped a shark in jet skis, and that was the end of Happy Days at that point. <laughs> so it's a, the point of no return for something for, for 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 you. To me, it's not as much of a deal killer for me. Uh, being that you know they portrayed Marta as very sim- simpatico and, and like very likable to to an extent that she yeah. was good at her job and Harlan found you know you know n- kindness in her that he was not seeing around him in his family so to me that's not a stretch but uh, so th- they keep going oh through- no that's not a stretch for me no, no, yeah, like yeah, I'm yeah. with you on that yeah this doesn't ruin the whole film for me no yeah. So we kind of we kind of get through the, through the rest of it, and he returns because what's been set up earlier. And I, I like I like how you know Ryan Johnson was smart. This would be a hard screenplay to write, Matt. Nope. Like these would be impossible to write. Yeah, this would be really difficult. Be- Can I say that? Well, let me say one thing here. Go ahead. Here's the trick on these. Mm-hmm. If you write it too simply, everybody gets it. If you write it too complex, you have Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which no one fucking gets. And if you've <laughs> never seen that film, go watch it on the first viewing, and I challenge you. 
to put that together in a linear fashion. Well, that's that book. That book, that author, the spy who John came Lecar. in. Yeah, who came in from the cold. He, that's how he writes. It's but just, do you it's, know what I mean? Like, it's very, that, that's it's, so complex very and com- so layered. And so A to B equals D. But don't forget about Q because we are like, it's it's an impossible write. It's just. almost too complicated. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So like earlier, it's been established that, you know, the three times that there was, you know, movement in the house and it's. You know, um, Marta coming down and saying, see you later, Walt. And then uh, and then it's uh, Thromby coming back down. It's really Marta in disguise. And then dogs barking later at three in the morning. This was Ransom trying to come back uh, to retrieve the evidence. And, you know, the dogs just kind of, you know, like gave him away. So he came back during the funeral and was kind of seen by Fran. So we're kind of tying that back into it now. We're like, he has like a one up on Fran. I think you can suspend the disbelief enough that there's all of this traffic through the upstairs window. That's a fake window that leads to this hallway to Thromby's death room that works out with just, well, they weren't there when this person was in the hallway at that time. Mm -hmm. And they even rather set it up semi-effectively with Jamie Lee Curtis's character being a really light sleeper and anytime that's, there's any that, travel on the stairs that's me are you really that, <laughs> I that hear, light I hear a and I'm like oh, what really? is that I gotta, that's awful I gotta tell you a funny story so like <clears throat> one time I was asleep and like I was dreaming and I, I thought I heard like banging on the front door like someone like like a freaky person like just Jeez. banging yeah. and it was my dog Ripley breathing in my ear <laughs> <laughs> so in my subconscious I thought someone was knocking but it was really my dog so does she sleep right next to your head sometimes yeah oh that's sweet <laughs> a little human that's awesome <laughs> yeah my so, basset hounds used to sleep like in the crook of my knees on the bed yeah I love dogs that's, <laughs> the reason our backs and our bodies are all messed up is because they <laughs> mess up our like our lumbar support. oh yeah so let me add to that to the backs being messed up my dog my basset hound got to be way too big and way too old to make it up the stairs mm-hmm. so she would sit and at the bottom of the stairs and bark for me to come down and get her out of a dead sleep and bring her up to the bed and if i didn't she would bark and if you've never heard a basset hound bark yeah, or howl it's loud you're not sleeping through that yeah so i'd have no choice but to lug this 70 pound dog oh, upstairs <laughs> who offered little to help little to no help on the carry mm-hmm. Yeah, that has as much to do with why I've taken so much Toradol in my life as, <laughs> as anything. As Thromby. Yeah. I yeah. don't even know where we are, but... Um, no, yeah, so... so okay, Jamie Lee Curtis, light sleeper. Yeah. Okay, go. So, yeah, she's she, she's heard stuff, like, all night, so that there's an indication of, like, all the sounds taking place in the house at that time. From the game board falling, to Marta falling down, to even Tony Collette's character walking upstairs, and... Just checking on you, like they, all that's set up and paid off effectively. Like, mm-hmm. and, and the, the reason that that um, ransom mm-hmm. isn't at the funeral mm-hmm. is because he snuck back into the estate yeah. to get the vials yeah. out of the medical bag to cover or no to doctor the labels. What the hell does he? I don't even remember. What does he go there for? You just what? He sneaks back in the house to. Yeah. Uh, whatever, change the labels, steal the vial, something. Yeah. I don't even know what. Yeah, and um, all of that's like set up and played out effectively well. I just don't know if I buy that Marta is so kind and so attentive. Well, he swapped them back after the funeral, is what he did. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I don't even know where to go. No, well, I, what I like about this at this point, and you know, as much as you were talking about Daniel as Benoit Blanc, I I like the Southern drawl at this point. And to me, that sounds 
that sounds very Agatha Christie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That sounds weird to say because I can't describe it. But like that feels like how this character should sound, and the way he's kind of going through the motions to kind of explain, you know, the little pieces that he's peppered in there by way of like all this conversation and all the and, and all this is. I I thought that was that that was fun to watch. And again, I like Daniel Craig doing it just yeah. because. That's yeah. that's Bond to me, right? And we talked about typecast actors earlier. We should probably every Bond actor is probably in that same conversation, mm-hmm. but it, it's just so different because it looks like he's having fun with the material. Um, I think he does comedy very well, which is odd to say, being that he does play Bond. But you don't get roles like this when when you play characters like that. You know what I mean? So this is almost kind of very fortuitous for him. You know, it's interesting. You just put a bug in my ear. Mm-hmm. If Sean Connery had been cast in the role of Christopher Plummer. Yeah. How cool would that have been? been Two ex-Bonds playing out the roles. And then, shit, Roger Moore could have been M. Emmett Walsh. Yeah. That would have been really, really, really cool. Yeah. Again, what a whatever. What a what if. We're going off subject a lot in this episode, but uh, Sean Connery... Uh, retired from acting after the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because the movie was so bad. He said, "I can't. He just I can't be in another movie." And he just quit. <laughs> that was the last film he was in. If you haven't seen that movie, you'll know why. <laughs> it's too bad too because that's a terrific story. Alan Moore, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. What a psycho! Yeah, yeah. No, um, what a psycho! <laughs> what a psycho! <laughs> okay, so Ransom's been found out. And then we kind of get the, the, the coup de grace here at the moment. They get a phone call from the hospital to let them know the status of Fran. In a flashback, we've seen that Ransom has gone and poisoned Fran with morphine. Yeah. So the totality of that is he's pretty sure she's dead. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of uh, Marta about to tell the entire Thrombley family, this is what really happened. Benoit Blanc comes around the corner and says, don't say a thing. Here's the truth. Read the toxicology report. So again, we're back to like what a not good sleuth this guy is. And then we get the reveal of Chris Evans and done equally well in backstory. All of the steps that he's gone through in order to get this to where it is now. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as all of the sins are being espoused to the Thrombley family, Marta takes a phone call from the hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're assuming it's on the status of Fern, who actually knows what's happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we don't hear her say anything. She just kind of nods and she turns around and says... She's going to make it. No, she says, um, yeah, she's going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. So then they're going to, like, go talk to her. And so this, Chris Evans is like, he's like, yeah, you can't, like... It's like, yeah, I tried to kill Fran, but it's like, you'll get me for two years arson of ar- and arson attempted murder. and attempted murder. And he's like, when I'll come back, it's like, I'll make your life a living hell, Martin, because you're not going to take from me. You're not going to take my family's livelihood. You're not going to take our thing. You know, he's, he's really playing it in now. You're not going to do all this from me. And at this point, she just pukes all over him, which disgusting, first of all. But she's uh, told a lie. But she's told a lie. She says, Fran is dead and you just could. Like, I thought this moment was was pretty, was was nice. Like, Agreed, yeah. Yeah. Just because that, that's been set up and we've seen her throw up and puke multiple times throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, guilty man. He, and then he lunges for her with 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 one of these these knives from this Game of Thronesy thorn type. So of he's thing. on tape. They have him now admitting to murdering Fran. Yeah. And so like they have him on tape. That's his admission. So he decides, well, if I'm going down, I might as well go down. So he grabs one of those knives from the Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um. 
backdrop. I don't even know what you'd call that. Yeah, that's an interesting little orifice. <laughs> and he jabs this knife into her as they fall to the ground, and we come to find out that it's one of those costume knives. <laughs> it's one of those. With the retractable blade <laughs> that upon impact sort of retracts into the handle. On the spring. <laughs> yeah, spring. And he's just like, it's all shit. I think yeah, that's exactly what he says. Arrested. So guilty now at this point. The sec- is, could you qualify that as additional attempted murder? Yeah. Even though it was a fake knife. <laughs> so, so Ransom, Chris yeah. Evans, is going away for some time. Yeah. And then the family's just in shambles at this point. Because now Don, John, or Jamie Lee Curtis, Linda, finds out that her husband's cheating on her. Through um, the, the letters that he wrote that are revealed through flame. Again, something a mystery writer would do, like kind of clues. And Jim Lee Curtis says earlier, this is like feels like one of dad's games. Yeah. Like this is like something that he like he does all the time. Yeah. So yeah, it's been set up, and they've said they have. A, she even says we have a secret, a secret way of communicating mm-hmm. with each other, which yeah. is basically writing in lemon juice on a letter and then you put a flame to the back and the letters come through exactly okay so that's all set up Mm -hmm. yeah and we're kind of just getting all our all our bits kind of tied up here and you know marta has this final kind of exchange with benoit blanc kind of saying like i should help them and benoit's like well i i have my opinion about about these people i'm sure you'll do the right thing and Mm -hmm. so she kind of goes out onto the balcony and again this cup that's also this i guess this was um harlan's cup it says like my coffee, my, my house, my rules, or something. My coffee, yeah. My coffee, my house, my rules. Yeah. Like that. And she's kind of looking down at them as they're like looking up at her, and they're just like, if there ever was a game of sorts, it was like Marta kind of versus the Thromby clan, and like who's going to kind of come out on top. And it's very symbolically it's, clearly on top. <laughs> it's Marta, and I love. I actually really do like it. She like looks down at them, and I think it, for a second, I think she's like, I'll let them live here. I'll take some money but it's really theirs i think she looks down at them and the way they just look at her and she just takes a sip of that coffee and she's like fuck you guys like kind of a thing and then we, we cut to to the rolling stones like to play us out so mr blanc i know who you are i read your profile in the new yorker i found it delightful i just buried my 85 year old father who committed suicide why are you here I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. I want to explain one thing real quick, because it seems like either Matt and I have been a little scattered or... It's just a lot to explain through. You need to go see the film because I don't want to say that the film's scattered because it's not. I feel it's fairly linear. It's it's well structured, but there's a lot happening in it. There's a lot of scenes that we haven't talked about that happen here that I think are a part of the experience of watching it that are either hard to remember or it's just it's this it's a it's a hard film to talk about if that makes sense to everybody out there at thanksgiving jesse said he was gonna go see it again because there's a lot happening and there really is Mm -hmm. to really probably do this super super fair i probably should see it again Mm -hmm. but we didn't get to it till last night so i only have the one viewing yeah i don't even think it's necessarily that the plot is so complex that you can't decode it on one viewing yeah there's just a lot of as as in every whodunit Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of moving parts yeah um, so if you're trying to extrapolate from what we've talked about for the last hour and 15 minutes, a linear story, 
um, this is not the podcast to do that in. Yeah. This is just the overall view. If you really want the full story, because the, the up and down with the stairs and Jamie Lee Curtis waking up and the conversations are had with where the family is with Ron Lee before he dies mm-hmm. are all really important to the movie, but we don't have time to get into that. Mm-hmm. And the sequencing would take an hour in and of itself. <laughs> oh, yeah. You probably ought to see that film um, in total. And I would actually argue mm-hmm. that as much as maybe multiple viewings of this might be important... Another thing that you need to have a base knowledge on, I think, to get so when whodunits in the mansion are done well, everyone needs to familiarize themselves with Ten Little Indians or And Then They Were None. Mm-hmm. Not the movie, because the movie's shit, yeah. but the novel by Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best reads ever. Yeah. 1942 or something like that. Yeah. And it's all of the sins that we've talked about, laid out with the person who's going to die and what that means, that set the standard for this. And unfortunately, that's such a masterpiece that it's really tough to live up to that. Sure. But that was, I don't know about you, that was my introduction into whodunit in mm-hmm. the sixth grade with Mrs. Fay at <laughs> Hoover Middle School. Nice. God bless you, Mrs. Fay, for that. Nice. And um, it's tough. Those are big shoes to fill. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I recommend everyone yeah, go see it, and then you can kind of get all these little subtle nuances because as they tie into the greater story, it just lends itself a little a little more difficult to talk about than uh, Terminator Dark Fate. <laughs> <laughs> right. As right. basic as that film is. Right. Anyway, so I think time now more than <laughs> ever. <funny. laughs> Let's rate the film. We have Rock Out, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Again, our whiskey theming. It's the name of the game. Matt, I'll let you go first with Knives Out. It's just a call for me. It's just a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I had high hopes for it. Again, it wasn't atrocious. Mm-hmm. There are some some glaring issues that I have with it. And for me and a whodunit, the petty bitchiness that I was sort of experimenting with earlier is in play because the moment that matters in this movie is Fern saying, and we spoke about it, mm-hmm. um, you did it. Yeah. And it's actually Hugh did it. Yeah. And Hugh is actually Ransom's real name. Yeah. Um, like all of that little minute stuff that you might gloss over is what makes a whodunit work. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of that that they expect you just to suspend your disbelief on to, to make happen. Yeah. Uh, it's There's some good performances. One of the tricks of ensemble pieces also is you can see who can act and who really can't. Mm-hmm. Michael Shannon can clearly act. Daniel Craig can clearly act. Tony Collette can can clearly act. Um, Anna de Automas, is that mm-hmm. her name, can mm-hmm. clearly act. And then you get to some of the other ones. Chris Evans clearly cannot act. Chris <laughs> Evans cannot act. Wooden motherfucker cannot act. Okay? And like I think that really is exacerbated mm-hmm. in ensemble pieces. Um, yes, it I probably wouldn't say call minus, although I could make the case, but I did I, I did find myself enjoying the movie at, at times. It just doesn't hold up to any introspection to me. Did you chuckle? Certainly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's some funny in there. Yeah. And I think that's also important of who done it is not to be quite so serious that you can't be a little self deprecating. I think yeah, those ones are those, those are always the best ones, yeah. It's just call. It's yeah. just an it's just an average movie. Yeah. It's it like literally this is the epitome of movie. 
eat some popcorn, enjoy it. Don't think too much about it. This is a movie. I, I can't remember what the film was that you reviewed and said this is the the most call film I could ever say. Um, I, don't, I can't remember what it was. I'd have to go back and. Was it li- Spider Man? No, it wasn't. Uh, I'd have to go back and listen. Well, I might have a new a new running mate for that one. All right. This is just this is just this is a movie movie. Sure. Excellent. Okay. I'm going to be a little more kind than you. I'm, I'm at about like like a single barrel right now with this film. Just because I don't think we get these whodunits very often, especially in this form and iteration. Yeah. So I think that itself is fairly unique. Assembling a cast like this is also, I think, fairly unique. Yeah. Um, the way it goes about, and I, I liked the twist and turns along the way being that, you know, Matt, we've seen so many movies that, you know, when we found out the whodunit within the first 30 minutes, I was kind of okay with that because I was like, well, what else is going to happen in the rest of this film to kind of like keep me on the edge of my seat? And there were several moments that did keep me on the edge of my seat. I wanted to see them play out. Again, I kind of, I'm with you too. Like, I think a lot of people have control over their character. Daniel Craig, I think for sure. You know, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis, Anna de Arm. I think they're they're really in touch with who they're playing, and I think doing a really good job. But Don Johnson too. Like, I, I I loved kind of like his 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 kind of like banter back and forth with Walt, kind of like the son and son-in-law kind of like little rivalry. Like that that was a lot of fun too. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's it's single barrel. I think in, in a season like this, Thanksgiving. You know, there's you know, the, not not a ton to see out. I think this is a bit of a solace for you to come check out because, again, I think you need to see it just to kind of like it, not indulge. What's the word I'm looking for? Digest kind of everything that that film is trying to do, which there's there's a lot going on in there. So yeah, it's a single barrel rating for me. I, I like Ryan Johnson. You know, you can say what you want about Star Wars: The Last Jedi. There's a lot of parts. what do you mean? Other than it's the third best movie in the entire pantheon. Yeah, what else are you gonna say? I really think it's it's fairly. I'm un- not gonna make I'm not gonna make excuses for that movie. That yeah. movie is panned yeah. unfairly. Mm-hmm. That okay, sorry, I, I'm just cut you off. No, go ahead. People kill that movie. Yeah, fans. It's and- that's not the movie to kill in that franchise. It's not. Yeah, I think he did some. I he did some brave and bold things with that film that are just bastardized by fans. And I'm I kind of I kind of dig it. And then you take stuff like Looper and Brick and the Brothers Bloom and like the guys. Yeah. And arguably, I think he did. He directed the single greatest episode of Breaking Bad. Maybe one of the greatest episodes of of television ever. I mean, the guys. Which one? Ozymandias. It's like the third to last episode. Oh, yeah. The one when Hank bites the dust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the guy's got a, a control. He writes and directs. So he's like, yes. he's very involved with his, his story. So I do like, too, that he did something as big as Star Wars and can't get bigger than that. Amen. To tone it down and do something small like this. Look, and to have the balls. We talk about this. To have the bravery mm-hmm. and the power. Yeah. To on spec mm-hmm. do a whodunit, which is an impossible task. Mm-hmm. Again, if it's too smart, no one gets it, and you got to watch it fifteen times. Yep. If it's too simple, everybody else is like, "Yeah, I got it." And it like there's there's very little standard deviation for success or failure in these kind of films. Oh yeah. And to spec it, not adapted. To spec it from the ground up brand new. Mm-hmm. Man, that's noteworthy. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to argue with you on any of that. And Ryan Johnson can direct any of the movies that you and I write. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Right. <laughs> I mean, I have no problems with that guy. Definitely. I love Brick. Yeah. Yeah, Brick's 
yeah, still no artist to, to an extent. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, single bar for me, but I, I recommend that everyone at least you got to see it at least once to kind of kind of get what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, to to an extent. So awesome. Let's uh let's end with the nightcap and let's kind of discuss. You know, being that it was Thanksgiving a couple days ago, and you know it's a time for giving thanks and be appreciative. Matt, my question to you is, uh, what's a film that you are thankful for? It's a strange answer for me because one of the the biggest moments in where I am with now in film happened when I was about 20 years old, maybe 19 years old. Mm-hmm. I walked into this class at the University of New Mexico taught by a retired math professor from Stanford named Gus Blaisdell. And I know you never had him, Jesse, mm-hmm. but he's as instrumental in your upbringing in this as he is mine because you sure. learned from his, mm-hmm. his EA mm-hmm. later on. Mm-hmm. And Gus rolled out this overwrought family drama with Natalie Wood and Warren Beatty called Splendor in the Grass. Now that movie is kind of hard to watch because it's just such a crazy portrayal of teenage sexual angst and what that means. Mm -hmm. But what that movie did for me is it exposed me to an entirely different realm of film that wasn't Mm -hmm. Ghostbusters, Lethal Weapon, (laughs) Standard. Yeah, yeah tent pole kind of summer fair. Yeah. And I knew that was out there, but I wasn't delving into more like Midnight Cowboy and some of this other things. Mm -hmm. And that movie got me thinking about film in a different way that was a bit more cerebrally. And although I can't really watch that film today and say, oh, let's watch Splendor on the Grass. Yeah. I'm thankful for that film and I'm thankful for that man giving me that film Mm -hmm. and then breaking it down with what, the sexual tension and angst and all of the themes that are sort of timeless for me in movies that continually are there like in every film. Yeah. Um, it all revolves around sex and procreation in some version to yep. me. Yep. The, the sustainability of life. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful for Splendor on the Grass. Splendor on the Grass. And I'm mostly thankful for Gus Blaisdell. Now, that doesn't mean go watch Splendor on the Grass. Yeah. But that turned me on to Love with the Proper Stranger and that turned me into The Hustler and the thing just blew up that's and expanded a, from there. That's Kazan, right? Yes. Yeah. It is Kazan. Ilya Kazan. His most decorated film other than On the Waterfront. Sure. Um, yeah, it's Kazan. Yeah, Warren Beatty and Natalie Wood. Warren Beatty's first film. Yeah. So then you go from there. Like, I kind of like this Warren Beatty guy. And you're like, well, I've seen some of his stuff. And then you look into Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, Arthur Penn. Yeah. And this is a little bit avant-garde and a little bit revolutionary. And then guess what I'm opened up to? Yeah. 67 through 74. All the good shit. Yep. And so then I meet Peter Bogdanovich in Last Picture Show. Mm-hmm. And then I meet Midnight Cowboy. And like the yeah. story, it all starts from Splendor, Splendor in, in the, the Grass. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. That's a good one. Thank you. I'm going a little old school as well, so I'm actually going to pick a film that I saw out of your class. So Matt teaches this film class called Real History, and I I was a student in the class. My prize-winning student. (laughs) Thank you. And there was five films in there that totally just like changed a lot of my viewpoints on film. We've talked about one of them already, Unbreakable. And one of the other ones we watched kind of around this time, around Christmas, and I was 18 at the time. I'd never seen it before. Kind of shocking, but maybe I don't know what it was. But it was. It's a Frank Capra's. It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Matt. I don't know. I used to sit in the back of the class, but like once we got to the end, and he had come back and reunited with his family, and everyone comes back. It was so. 
I had to. I was biting my tongue because I was. I was about to just weep. Cry. Yeah. yeah, I was just welling with tears, and I was just like, "Man, this film did that to me." Like, we talked about J- uh, Jimmy Stewart last week, but we, Frank Capra is a totally another conversation. Like him, John Ford, Billy Wilder, all those directors of that uh, time, just legends. Yeah, and that film is now in my repertoire of must-watch holiday viewing because of watching it in your class. But it's it's literally it's one of a few other than Rocky one, two, and it's a wonderful life that can really get me worked up like big time. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally have to leave the room. Like so after I saw it in your class, I think that next Christmas my I don't think we'd ever watched it as a family. I bought it and we watched it that Christmas. Like that scene happened. I went to the kitchen to get a drink of water. I just couldn't be that. I was like losing my mind. I was just like, it's that song too. It's that 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 that, that New Year's song. Um, I can't. I want to say Av Santi, but that's the Omen theme. You, you know, you know what song I'm thinking I do, of. Yeah. Yes. Do you? Um, when we write a lot of our themes, go back to family. We like mm-hmm. oftentimes when we look at our scripts, it, it's family. Oh yeah. Every one of them has that that thread through them. Fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, literally every single one of them. Yeah. That movie is exactly why. Yeah. That you get that on the way that I got that because mm-hmm. that movie does that to me too. Oh yeah. So can I ask you a question about like the other viewers in the room when that movie happened? How are mom and dad? I could see mom. I couldn't see dad, but I could see mom getting a little weepy. A little bit, I, yeah. Dad's, dad's a little more steely. Than oh me. yeah. And I get the steeliness from him. But like, there's just like any other movie, I'm fine. But something about the emotions that play out in those three films and Rocky one that sounds weird, but no, we'll cover that one day. Yes, we will. Uh, yeah, it really happens for me, but I think it's just a it's a brilliant film that was a bomb when it came out, mm-hmm. but it's just it's it's legendary uh to say the least. So, I don't know if I, I I probably would have seen it eventually way down the line, but that's not a film you teach in a like a filmmaking class. No. It's Citizen Kane and it's Ingmar Bergman and it's uh, Persona K- and Kurosawa and I love all of that stuff. Right, right. But you don't really pop on It's a Wonderful Life cuz it's you have seen that by now. So maybe I, I, I haven't seen it out unless I had seen it in that class for the first time. So I'm very thankful for uh, that viewing of It's a Wonderful Life, which it's in the queue here coming up in the next couple weeks. Think about all of the things that that movie tackles. Time travel, the supernatural, family, uh, domestic roles, United States. Religion. Like, religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just... Suicide. <laughs> suicide, mm-hmm. finances. Like mm-hmm. that movie covers it all and yeah. so capably done. Yeah. With Jimmy Stewart, and I hope people are not rolling their eyes on the back end of this, Michael. I'm like, oh my god, mm-hmm. sure they're doing that movie at the holiday season. There's a reason why. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a reason why. Like, reflective look at film and life, because film to me is life. Oh yeah, it's the expression of what we can't do mm-hmm. because we can't do it. Yeah. So you play it out on screen, and you get to sort of live through that. Yeah. It's that. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. And, Such a, yeah, I'm, thank you, Jesse. And Donna Reed, amen. The hottest <laughs> next door neighbor of all time. Yes, yeah. No, it's just it's 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 such a great watch. And you know, if you haven't seen any of it, like Frank Capra's, like it's uh, it happened one night. Like the guy's got a great filmography too. Like with, yeah. with, with all those guys. <laughs> yeah, maybe like one of like the first true like auteurs, like with like John Ford and Billy Wilder. Like it's all the same time happening. Like that's, that's such a great period for Hollywood. It sure is. It was like it's like World War II is happening, but like the filmmakers are really trying to like really challenge and I got to throw John Huston in there too. Of course. Yeah. We talk about that 67 through 74 period ad mm-hmm. nauseum. Mm-hmm. This is the other period that I think is really showcasing 
what was good mm-hmm. in filmmaking yeah. in the history of Hollywood. Definitely. Yeah. And it's important. I think, I, I don't want to say it gets forgotten, but like definitely by my generation, it's a little hard to find your way into that. But I, as a film fan, a film buff, you have to find your way to that stuff because they laid the groundwork for all this stuff that came before. You think George Lucas wasn't influenced by films of film Frank Capra and Billy Wilder? If he doesn't, if that doesn't like get him, you know, riled up, he doesn't do something like Star Wars. You know what I mean? Yes. Speaking of which. <laughs> Speaking of which. What a segue. I mean, can we, before you go into that, yeah. think about that. I mean, you go from like, It's a Wonderful Life, and that launches you into all of that, that, that Mildred Pierce era. Mm-hmm. And that stuff is, which is sudden fear, and now we're playing around on the heels of what noir is. Mm-hmm. Like that period is such a good period. And Hitch- and in the middle of all that, Hitch- Hitchcock, Hitchcock's doing his thing and like rope and like, I know that's great. God bless. You know, if I could time travel, I would want to go live like Hollywood, like 1938 to like 47, 48. Man, what a time to be alive! Like in that town. To Gus Blaisdell. Now it's a cesspool. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart and Splendor in the Grass, man. That's a, well, Amen to I'm that. I'm so thankful for those three things. Yeah. yeah. Great things to be thankful for. Gus, God bless you, man. I hope you hear this out there. Yeah. I owe you so much. And someday when I see you again, I'm going to tell you just how much I owe you. Mm-hmm. Like changed my life. Awesome. Yeah. So back to that segue. So, Matt, we got a big, big, big film coming out in three weeks. Huge. Huge film. Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. Now we kind of thought about, oh, how how could Rice Smile Films play into this? And the best way we thought we could play into this was, man, we gotta we gotta cover the originals, the OGs of this series. So for the next four weeks, we're gonna be spending some time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> yeah, well said. Yeah, but um, maybe we'll cover the prequels one day in the newer films. But what we're gonna do and lead up to this film, we're gonna have a lot of fun with it. We're gonna. Having some some guests on, like yeah. this is gonna be a, a blast. Actually, we're gonna cover A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and then give you all a week enough time to see Rise of Skywalker, and we'll cover that one. Uh, I think December twenty eighth. Mm-hmm. So this is gonna be fun. I can't think of a film series, especially those OGs, um, more important than maybe any other film series ever. Ever like. We talked about, I think, on the John Wick episode about world building and what George Lucas was able to world build with this series. I mean, there's a whole land in Disneyland now where you can go, like, walk through it. It's it's remarkable what it's turned into. Yeah. And now the Mandalorian TV show, this whole thing. So we're going to talk about all of it, literally all of it and lead up to The Rise of Skywalker, which, you know, you're hesitant about. I'm cautiously optimistic, but, hey, we'll see it when we see it. But let's 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 go back to the past and look at some of the originals first. If that movie's great, mm-hmm. and I mean great, great, mm-hmm. does it save 2019 for you? Do you take 2019 as being a really bad year off the books and say that was actually an okay year? Uh, I don't know because it's been like unanimously like really bad. So, but like, like let's say it's like Empire Strikes Back level of good. Mm, maybe does it save 2019? It's going to be an interesting conversation. I yeah. hope it is. Yeah, maybe because I think that'd be. The the one shot that we do for the year in review, yeah, that's going to be towards the end of the yeah, year, maybe. I know. I'm hopeful. So yeah, there's a couple Hail, Hail Marys out there still. Like Uncut Gems might be really good. No, they showed a trailer for that last night. That looks really doesn't it? Kevin Garnett. 
<laughs> I know. I'm, I'm on board. But man. like it, again, talking about out of character, Daniel Craig playing in this character, Adam Sandler playing just not him, like that Jackie happy, Jill. happy Gilmore bullshit. Right. I like Happy Gilmore, I but do, like, know, yeah, but still, yeah, it's yes. like he's so that's not him, and that intrigues me. I like when actors take chances like that. Yeah. So it, it what it proves to me is that it's more about the paycheck than and, and more about the crap than the paycheck. Since about February, it's been third and twenty, using the football metaphor, the entire year. Literally, yeah. And so we've got a couple Hail Marys still to throw before we officially lose. I think we got that one. We got Jumanji. Nineteen fourteen. We got Star Wars. Yeah, nineteen uh, seventeen. Sorry, seventeen. <laughs> Three years too soon. Whatever. Yeah. But um, I think there's some. Uh, Would you say Jumanji, Uncut Gems, Star, Star Wars, Wars 1917? December might be able to bring it home for us. If three of those four hit. Mm-hmm. We have to take 19, 2019 being a bad year off the board. Maybe it was just the summer that was really... Because Rocketman's good. Yeah, I loved Rocketman. John um, Wick, Parabellum. John was Wick good. was good. Avengers Endgame, as much as we trashed it, is still a good movie, but the story's troubling. Midway was good. Yeah. This uh, movie wasn't fucking I mean, dark garbage. I mean, you love Joker. and like I, was, I love Joker. I was Luke Gorman on Joker, but it's still a good movie. So, I don't mm. know. I don't know. Here's crossing our fingers to hope. But man, a fucking glass and serenity just like totally got us off on the wrong foot. Boy, didn't they? Uh, yeah. Cheers, Matt. Cheers. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Uh, Rice Smile Nation for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. But until then, I gotta get going. I gotta go solve a whodunit of my own. Uh, I hope it's not as hard to talk about as this one. <laughs> no catchy one-liner for me this week. I just want you all to sit down and read, and then there were none, or Ten Little Indians, whatever version of that Agatha Christie novel you can find. It's the best 300 pages in three hours you'll spend. That's the ma- Okay, so we should start like a new thing. It's, we call it like Matt's Homework Corner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This week for homework, you have to uh, read Ten Little Indians, and then there were none. You have to watch Death, Death Trap yeah. with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. And you have to go see this film. Ever the teacher, huh? Yeah. We'll give you homework next week, too. And if you don't do it, I'm sending you to the timeout center. (laughs) Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody, have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, and leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. Knives Out is property of Lionsgate, Media Rights Capital, and T-Street, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers.